All right, everybody. Welcome back to Coffee with Graymass. It's been uh, a little bit of time since we last recorded, but I'm Miles Snyder. I am Aaron Cox. And we're here today to talk about Antelope and the Leap Upgrade. Um, Aaron, I think probably the best way to kick this off is before we talk about Leap specifically, um, talking about EOS IO versus Antelope and the transition there. Do you want to give a little bit of background? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, man, where to start? I guess uh, the EOSIO code base has kind of been what we've all been running off of for a very long time, um, since the genesis of EOS and the test nets before that. Um, it's the code base that Block One created, I don't know, about five years ago now, and was working on. Um, that up until maybe a year ago was. I don't know, somewhat actively maintained, but due to the events late last year with the kind of community demanding a little bit more from Block One and then the decision to ultimately go it alone as the community, um, this is kind of the results culminating from all of those events over the past couple of years. And I mean, I think there's a whole series of episodes alone talking about that, so we're not going to get super deep into the history, but... Antelope represents the the fork of EOSIO that is now maintained by the networks that are running this code base, and uh, it more represents the community's vision moving forward for public blockchains to run off of this technology rather than the kind of I don't know private focused blockchain driven development that was going on for a couple years before that. Yeah, definitely. And then when you uh, compare like EOSIO to Antelope, and then there's also like Leap within Antelope, can you talk about sort of like the the difference between the framework versus the implementation? Yeah. Um, Antelope is the name of the protocol that the EOSIO coalition came up with. Um, and the coalition consists of EOS, WAX, Telos, and UX, the UX network. Um, it is kind of the broad umbrella term for this technology, being just antelope. Um, it was decided that the implementations themselves, specifically the C++ Im implementation, which is the programming language that it's written in, uh, would have its own unique name, and that was named Leap. So Leap is the C++ implementation of the antelope protocol, and in the future we may see other implementations written in other programming languages, um, sort of like in the Ethereum space, you have a Golang, Golang Ethereum implementation. You have a C++ one. There's a Python one. I think there's some other languages in development. I am not super well-versed on that these days, so hopefully that's all correct. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say, is I think it, the, the differ, differentiating between the two kind of is more reflects what goes on in, in other blockchain spaces, and you see that. Um, yeah, exactly. So I think it's helpful. This first version of Leap uh, that is out now, Leap 3.1, is the like the real first big push and big implementation of this new uh, branded protocol. So that is kind of the, I guess, the short of it all, the mm -hmm. kind of the background behind what all of this is. And there's been a lot going on in the background. I mean, this is probably a project that's been about a year in the works. Uh, including the branding and the technology and contributions from, I don't even know how many people, but a lot. So we're finally 
reaching ahead where it's production ready and it's really exciting times. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you do study the history, you know, for, for people who aren't aware of that, it's worth going back and, and looking at it a little bit, but it does make sense in my opinion to transition to something new that, you know, is more community owned because what EOSIO was and what this community has gone through doesn't really like it wasn't fully reflected. And Antelope is this new thing and it's the evolution of, of EOSIO, but there's also a lot of new features that are being add to, added to it because it's, uh, you know, it's an active software project that now is being developed by the community. Yeah. And really these changes uh, started maybe last, uh, last fall. I don't know the exact date, so I'll just say fall. Um, but the, the blue papers that the ENF sponsored last fall that we took part in were a big driver in some of these features. So it's really exciting to see a lot of that, um, a lot of those ideas come to life. You know, we outlined specifically in the API plus paper, um, some of the problems that the networks was having from kind of a technical and a user experience perspective from the core software. And this new leap release of 3.1 actually implements a lot of those ideas, which is uh, awesome to finally see coming together. Yeah, I mean, it might be interesting to talk about some of those specific things that have changed and why they're useful and, and uh, maybe like what both developers and users can expect out of those. Yeah, I can dive right into some of that. Um, I think going back in time to last fall, one of the things that was happening on, I think, EOS, but maybe on a couple of other networks, was that we had transactions that were being submitted and then just disappearing. Um, this was one of the most noticeable things that users were experiencing, and it was a rather frustrating uh, experience. You know, your wallet or the app you were using said, hey, you know, transaction complete, here's the ID. Uh, go look it up somewhere, and then you'd go look it up, and it wasn't there. So that was kind of forefront in some of our minds as we were working on the API Plus Blue Paper. Um, and we wrote a couple different proposals on things that could be resolved within that. Um, those ideas were then taken, I think, in early spring and contracted out to be developed. Uh, and we're at a point now where some of those ideas are production ready and they got merged into the leap um, the leap release here. So now that we have this release coming out, those features are going to help the user experience so that these there are methods in place to prevent transactions from disappearing, um, as well as some other different ideas that came out of the papers um, to improve the developer experience. So we now have for example, an API endpoint that kind of emulates history to some degree. So that way you can um, ask for the status of a transaction and it returns it. Uh, that will reduce the burden on some of like the full history nodes like we run. Um, I guess another example is there are ways to compute the cost of a transaction before submitting it now. We on our side have always kind of had this, but it's because we hacked it in to the old software. But now there's like a, there's a channel and an API endpoint to officially go through that'll be available on any API endpoint that also serves this same function. So um, there's just a lot of new features that 
may not immediately improve the user experience. Like some may, like the disappearing transactions thing. Um, but others that aren't going to be apparent for a little while until we get the chance to, you know, update the applications and the libraries the developers use to take advantage of those features. So I know there's also a ton of really cool operator um, additions into the software that, as you know, we run APIs, other many organizations run APIs, but just these features that will make it better and easier for us to run these services at a like a higher throughput. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'll make sense. I think one of the things that people who are users of ESIO or who have been paying attention a little bit to this will notice is that, you know, there's a lot of talk about prepping for this network upgrade. Um, and I would love for you to explain to people a little bit about like what it means to upgrade the network in this way. Is this a hard fork? Is it different from a hard fork? Um, and why does that type of change have to happen in order to implement Leap? Yeah, that we've been, I think as a community, we're trying to call them consensus upgrades right now. Um, because once the block producers have reached consensus that this upgrade needs to happen, then at a very technical level, a hard fork does occur. Hard forks occur constantly in EOS and well in Antelope as a protocol as a whole. Um, so when we're, you know, the larger blockchain industry says hard fork, they think one thing, but in the Antelope realm, it's really a very different thing, uh, at least in terms of broader community perception, it's a very different thing. Um, but this Leap 3.1 does include new features that can be activated that would cause, at a very technical level, a hard fork. Mm. Um, and, you know, coming up on, I think it's the 21st, um, it's on my calendar, um, there is going to be a point in time where the block producers agreed and there's going to be a consensus upgrade that occurs, in which case a hard fork will happen and every node on the network will need to be upgraded to be running Leap 3.1. Um, those that are not running 3.1 will simply stop running. Mm -hmm. um, they're not going to get new blocks. They won't be able to process transactions. They need to, they'll, uh, they'll just need to upgrade their software and start it again. It's, it's not like a huge deal, but there may be some form of interruptions. Um, there is a lot going on in terms of communication and outreach to make sure everybody is aware that this date is coming. Um, that's been going on for weeks, if not months at this point. Um, but when that's activated, we're going to be enabling some new features. There's going to be, um, I think, some support stuff coming in for the EVM implementation that's coming. Um, and just a number of um, changes that are going to occur on the network, both for users and for operators that, in theory, will be improving how the network operates. Uh, this is the first upgrade we've had like this in years. I think the last one we did was power up. If that if people have any sense of timeline for, you know, when that was, I think it was like two years ago, over yeah. two years ago. So there is there is a consensus upgrade coming, a hard fork coming, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's coming pretty quickly. We're doing this podcast like uh, less than two weeks before it happens. So Hopefully everyone's going to be upgraded. I mean, I think we have to anticipate that somebody didn't get the message <laughs> over the past couple months. And there's probably going to be an exchange that's not recognizing deposits or anything. 
Um, those will all be temporary interruptions, though. It's not the end of the world. It might just be an inconvenience to some. Um, it's just that those nodes are no longer going to be participating in the network. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I think about the different classes of users that are potentially affected by this upgrade. There's obviously the block producers. Um, there's part, you know participants like exchanges that are running nodes. Um, there's developers who are building applications and then there's like users of these different blockchains. So it might be interesting to kind of like go through those and talk about, you know, like for, from our perspective as a block producer, what we're doing to prepare for this. And then, you know, for these other classes of users, what they should, what they should or need to be doing for it. So let's start with gray mass and, you know, as a block producer on the network, how is gray mass preparing for this upgrade and, and what goes into that? Yeah, absolutely. It's been a couple weeks now since we've started, and it's not it's not necessarily full-time work, but it does take time. There's a lot of waiting on a lot of this stuff. Um, but we have to essentially upgrade every one of our servers for EOS specifically, because that's the network that this hard fork is coming for. Um, we, like for example, have our API nodes, which are pretty heavily used, and every single one of them needed to be brought down rebuilt and then brought back online. Um, same with the peer-to-peer -peer nodes, which are kind of like the silent interconnectivity between our network and the rest of the EOS network. Those all needed to have the same thing done. Um, we have infrastructure that we use and we also share publicly, like our snapshots. Um, the snapshot servers also needed to be upgraded to this new software. And then the new snapshots, there's actually a new snapshot format. Uh, those needed to be published out. Um, we have other APIs like our history API, which is kind of a different beast than our normal APIs. Uh, those needed to be upgraded as well. Our block production nodes, the ones that actually create the blocks every two minutes or so. Uh, those needed to be, you know, systematically shut down, rotated, upgraded, and brought back online to avoid interruption. Um, and I'm trying to think of what else, like fuel, I guess, is another example of something that needed to be upgraded. Mm -hmm. We kind of like I mentioned earlier, how we had this like hacked together version of um, the old EOSIO software that could estimate the cost of a transaction without submitting it. We had to bring another node up in parallel that was running late 3.1. And then we had to rewrite a small portion of fuel to use this new API endpoint called compute transaction. So that way, instead of um, hitting this old hacked version of EOSIO, we're hitting this new antelope endpoint. Um, that's already done. I don't think anybody noticed any downtime with fuel. Um, I'm sure there are some other operational type stuff, but from a BP perspective, um, every block producer has to do this. You know, they're going to have to take every blockchain node that they operate and perform this upgrade on. It's not hugely time consuming. Um, it's not a super high amount of effort, but it can be in some situations. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, you know, the, the time of downloading, the time of syncing a little bit, um, the time of bringing it back online and then making sure it's running like that. It all adds up, especially when you're talking about dozens of servers. So yeah. that's been a large part of our uh, workload over, I don't know, the past couple of weeks, I would say, with a couple different people on the team involved. So, yeah. And then yeah. What, what does it look like for someone like an exchange who's not necessarily um, like an exchange BP, but is servicing uh, EOSIO customers? 
Right. They, it's kind of the same process. Yeah. Um, it's the same software. It's just configured a little differently. Uh, and most likely what they had to do was perform the same kind of upgrades like we did on our API nodes. Um, some of them may have more complex infrastructure, but I think pretty much everything should be backwards compatible from their custom exchange logic. Um, but if they wanted to go the extra mile, there are new things within the code base that actually may help them um, in the future. I, you know, I don't, exchanges are pretty tight lipped when it mm. comes to what they're doing and how they're using the software. So I don't, I'm making a lot of assumptions here, but um, if the exchanges did find the time, there are a number of things they could have taken advantage of to either reduce the cost of running the network within their own infrastructure or um, ways to potentially make it so that they could recognize transactions more quickly and easily, more deposits specifically. Yeah. Um, so all in all though i mean like those types of operators exchanges um other wallets uh i'm, I'm drawing a blank at other kinds but they all probably had to go through very similar upgrade processes like we did yeah i i don't know this off the top of my head but do you know if there are any like major exchanges that have already said publicly that they're aware of all these upgrades and have taken the um, steps to prepare for them i am unaware too uh, I can only assume that the communication that's outgoing has reached some of them. Uh, certainly the exchanges that are block producers will hopefully be taking that into account. Yeah. Um, I know that there are go, no go meetings and um, status meetings that are being held quite regularly. I think they're going to start daily as of the week of the 12th. Um, so I think we'll be getting a lot better sense of who's ready and who's not uh, as we lead up to the upgrade. And if there, if the actual like consensus upgrade or hard fork needs to be uh, delayed because some major provider is not ready yet, that I'm assuming is a possibility. But it's also not the end of the world if uh, their nodes just aren't in sync for a little bit. Their customers may be impacted, but. Really, it's you know their responsibility to make sure that they are the ones performing these upgrades. It's not necessarily the network's responsibility to wait. Yeah. Um, all right. So, what about for the next classes that we talked about? Like someone who's developing an application on top of one of these uh, blockchains. As far as uh, like requirements of things they have to do, I don't think there's much. Uh, like I kind of just mentioned a little bit ago, everything should be compatible, like backwards compatible. So a developer who is, if they're running their own infrastructure, like we've talked about in the last two segments, um, they're going to have to upgrade their own stuff. That's just a given. But in terms of their software, I really don't think there's too much they have to do. But again, there's new features that they might be able to take advantage of to make their product better. Um, like on our side, we also, you know, we are developers, we build products, mm -hmm. Anchor, Unicove, uh, I mentioned Fuel, um, both Anchor and Unicove don't need any changes made. They, they're just going to work out of the box with this new software. Um, Fuel, I mentioned that small change we had to make, but from a software development point of view, really not much to do. And I assume that's pretty much the same for end users then as well. Yeah, that directly translates into end users um, because, like, again, going back to Anchor or Unicove, like, we're not updating them. 
because they work. And so the users using them should not notice any um, difference in how it performs. Like they should all just function as intended. Obviously, we'll be keeping an eye on that because there's uh, the possibility that something may go haywire. But um, yeah, I think for developers and users, they should just get the benefits of the upgrade without having to do a whole lot, which is honestly how upgrades should go. Yeah, totally. Um, I guess zooming out a little bit, there's obviously this specific change and transition from EOSIO to Leap. There's a specific implementation that's you know the first version. There will be more in the future. But what do you think, uh, what kind of changes do you think that this brings to the ecosystem as a whole? Is there anything that you're particularly excited about for um, what Antelope and Leap enable? And then maybe even we can talk a little bit about like, the vision for Antelope moving forward and what this means for this community to no longer um, sort of have this model that is tied directly to one specific company like Block One and is transitioning more towards this truly community-driven model. Yeah. Um, I mean, aside from the fact that this is actually happening, which is probably <laughs> the thing I'm most excited about, um, on our side, I think it's a lot of the new API endpoints you know, I, as I just said, we are developers. Um, and when we worked on the API plus blue paper with EOS Nation and EOS Rio, um, we tried to look at how the APIs function from both a software development point of view and from an operator point of view. And from the software um, developer point of view, we kind of put a lot of our uh, wish list of the things that, you know, we wish that this software actually had. And we that wish list wasn't completely fulfilled. I hope that it is over the coming, I don't know, year or so. Um, but some of these API endpoints are going to make it easier to, um, let's say, improve the user experience for submitting a transaction in that we can, we can tell you upfront whether a transaction is gonna fail or not. We can tell you how much it's going to cost from either a fee perspective through something like Fuel, or we can tell you from a resource perspective from CPU, Net, and RAM. You know, if you're a power user that wants to manage all of that on your own. Um, and then once you know we've given you a good overview of what the transaction is going to be as a, you know to a user, then when they accept it, we can make sure that it makes it into a block. It has been executed and that finally it makes it to an irreversible state. Um, these are things that we have wanted to be able to do for users to improve that like that one flow, you know, mm -hmm. the, from the point where the user decides they wanna do something to the user getting like a receipt that like, yes, this is final, this, is, this can't be changed, you've completed this, congratulations. Um, there's a lot of improvements in that realm now that we're going to be able to take advantage of that I'm really excited about. And we're going to do a lot of that in this new uh, web SDK project that we're starting to take on, which we'll have to do a whole episode about. Um, but I think for me personally, that's probably what I'm most excited about as a developer. Yeah. As an operator, I can say that um, the new, again, API endpoint that lets you kind of have a mini history server with transaction statuses. 
I think that that's going to reduce the load on full history providers like what we provide, because now there is like this light alternative that can be enabled on any node. And if once we get all of the software switched over to using that, it's going to reduce the burden on these huge full history solutions and like leave those expensive resources to do what they should be doing. And that's looking back into the far past about like what happened ages ago on an account or totaling things that have happened over the entire history of the blockchain. Um, rather than like, hey, I did a transaction 10 seconds ago. Hey, full history node, did that finish? It's like, you can, you can do that now on more servers rather than just these full history things. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the, so this explicit goal that the ENF has talked about a lot recently is like making um, Antelope blockchains the most usable blockchains out there. And that, I think, comes from all of these little micro improvements that sometimes are things that almost feel insignificant to the end user. But when combined and added up, they really make a huge difference um, in terms of what that user experience is like. And some of those come from, you know, things like being able to accurately predict fees um, some of them come from, you know, improvements to history that help developers actually building their applications. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that aspect of Leap. You know, there's like these different improvements that are happening with this f first version, but there's also more improvements that are going to continue to be added in the future towards that goal of just making things really, really usable. Yeah. Yeah. And we need, like, this kind of sets the stage for a number of improvements, um, you can think about, I mean, PowerUp is both a good and a terrible example of this. Uh, but when PowerUp was activated, you know, it was the foundation for a more easy to use future. We had before that uh, Rex, which let you rent resources for 30 days, which was kind of a really inflexible system. And then before that, we had resource staking, which, mm -hmm. you know, every user had to stake uh significant amount of resources like EOS tokens to either net or CPU for some guaranteed allocation of resources. Like both of these systems were complicated. And then PowerUp itself was also kind of complicated, but it did set the stage for tools to be built on top of it to really improve the user experience. And I mean, that's how Fuel came about. Fuel existed before PowerUp, but it got a lot better when PowerUp came out. It became a lot more sustainable for us to operate. Um, and this is going to be a similar upgrade where there's the a lot of these really cool technical things in the background that are coming with this new upgrade that uh, over the course of the coming months, we're going to see start to be implemented and start to be realized and start making the user experience just that much better. Um, it's you're right, they are really small to the end user changes. Um, but once they are fully integrated into all of the systems, like they make a really big impact. And it's, I don't know of a great analogy for this, but you know, it's as soon as it starts working the way it should be, everyone's going to stop thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And that was the goal. Uh, totally. Um, yeah. Um, I touched on this before, but I, I would love to hear your kind of high level thoughts on what it means for this community to move away from this kind of, kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, like corporate driven development model that we had before, 
where you had this this big entity that was doing a lot of the core software development. Um, you know, there was kind of these like interesting conflicts of interest with staked tokens that they had that were unlocking, but not necessarily like a direct feedback loop from the community to that corporation and, you know, them not necessarily um, answering directly to the community's needs and the complications that arose from that versus the new model that we're moving to, which is this, you know, sort of coalition of different uh, blockchains that are all utilizing this framework kind of together governing and developing the software. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest change that's occurred is that when we had this one entity in place and they were in charge of leading development, um, they had shareholders, they had people that wanted to see return on their investment. And the way that they drove the software forward was as a framework to launch brand new blockchains, but it didn't really do much for any blockchain that existed already. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, the last significant change that came that was, you know, really impactful to a network like EOS was PowerUp. And since then, um, we had a proposal for like staking pools, but that didn't go anywhere and wasn't continued on. Um, But we had no as these networks, uh, as EOS or WAX or Telos or UX, there was no, there was no feedback mechanism directly that said, you know, hey, we're struggling in this regard, let's improve this aspect of the software. Instead, it was just kind of this black box that was churning out arguably software to produce private blockchains to facilitate their own product needs. There were no updates, there were no, I mean, there were some updates, but they weren't, I think, what the live networks actually needed. They were features to kind of twist the software into um, other purposes for other purpose-specific blockchains, Mm -hmm. which also has some value, but it's not valuable to public networks. It's valuable to private networks, which... We don't have to necessarily get into, you know, the idea of a private blockchain, but. Um, <laughs> That's another can of worms. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So, uh, but now this shift has occurred where we, we've we had this coalition now for, I don't know, since spring or maybe even winter. I don't remember exactly when it started. Um but they are the ones that are identifying their own individual needs and kind of submitting it into a pool of needs by all networks and then the networks are kind of by super consensus of the networks coming up with a list of priorities what's most important to the to the coalition and then that is now driving the development it is funding the development Um, this coalition has a budget that is set aside to do things like this Um, some of the big notable ones coming up our our project, this web SDK that we've been pitching since the Wallet Plus Blue Paper, um, and IBC and Faster Finality. Just for really quickly, can you explain how that budget functions with this coalition, and like, yeah. how, or how that money, uh, where it comes from, how it gets pooled, etc. Yeah, there is an algorithm that they came up with um, that I think and. You may want to look this up, but I think it's based on liquidity and market cap 
of yeah, each network. I think, I think that's right. Uh, yeah. And then based on that factor and the members of the coalition, it comes up with uh, a ratio that each network contributes to this shared funding pool. Uh, I think it was announced in the spring that they wanted this budget to be $8 million a year, which is probably a little low for uh, the networks of these magnitude, but it's a great start. Um, and each network contributes their fair share into this pool that then the coalition of networks helps decide how to allocate towards which features, towards which products maybe, um, and towards how we're moving forward with the development of the software. So that, I think, TLDR is how it works. Um, it's all still kind of a system in flux. I know that there's been some fluidity in how the system works. Uh, all of the coalition calls are public. I know it's it's a tall ask to say, just go watch them. They're weekly. Um, but that is, if you watch those, that's probably how to get the best sense of how this, from a financial perspective, uh, the coalition operates. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I guess I'm not going to ask you to, to speculate on what you think will happen with this coalition, but I'd be curious for your kind of vision for how you would like to see this evolve in the future um, in terms of like how it works and, and maybe what the, what kind of priorities it takes on in, in terms of development, things like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd like to see the coalition grow. Um, right now it's four chains and I think that there everything's kind of still being set up, like the framework of how this group operates is being set up. So growth, maybe not in the cards just yet, because there are other fires to put out. Um, but in the future, I would really love to see it grow and for other networks to be joining in and contributing both financially and through thought, like each chain kind of has its own direction, its own mandates and its own struggles. Um, we're already seeing that with the four chains that are part of the coalition, like some are having scaling concerns, some are having um, like a real strong desire to improve the usability. Um, there's, there's just, it's great to get these different perspectives that are ultimately the perspectives of those chains and their consensus mechanisms brought up to like this higher level. It's like a like if you consider each blockchain to kind of be a DAO, it's a DAO of DAOs that um, this coalition kind of represents. And I think there's some really cool paths forward for a more inclusive membership and probably a better structure um, of how it could work and just really helping drive innovation from the perspective of all chains rather than just you know this one company that's not involved in any of the chains. And I guess so with that being said, um, I'm hopeful that the coalition is going to be the right direction for this, these chains and this whole ecosystem to be um, heading in um, rather than just, like I said, this one entity kind of driving everything. Um, having all of these voices, having a seat at the table is going to be a lot more pr productive than kind of just yelling into a void because <laughs> that's yeah. kind of what it felt like sometimes for sure and yeah i think like the something that you 
highlighted was that the goals of block one in this sort of like corporate drive driven model were not always aligned with the goals of the actual live networks. And with this new coalition model we're moving to, each one of these live networks is is collectively a part of this. And they kind of have a say um, in this that is proportional to um, in some ways, their importance as measured by like liquidity and market cap. Um, and so I think it's a much tighter feedback loop that will ultimately benefit the users of these blockchains quite a bit more um, because their actual you know, wants and needs are going to be heard and acted upon much more quickly and efficiently, I would say. Yeah. And it opens the doors for... Uh, community development to come mm-hmm. in and help drive this innovation. Um, no, no longer do you need to kind of work for this one entity in order to impact the core software itself. You can be anybody with the right skill set and the right ideas and propose those ideas and have them heard and potentially acted upon. Um, the blue papers, again, I know I keep bringing them up, but they're kind of the origins of a lot of this, of a lot of these mm-hmm. ideas. They go to show that, you know, the people that have been in this space for a while that have ideas, if they can express them properly, they can be acted upon and they can be implemented and they can be brought to uh, production in these live networks. That's what we're going to see on the 21st is the ideas of the community that have been building up over years um, that haven't been implemented finally come to life and um, impact these chains in some meaningful way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I guess to, to kind of wrap this up, uh, you know, I don't know if there's any final thoughts you want to share on any of what we've discussed or, or other stuff. Um but I invite you to do that. And, and if not, maybe just talk about if there's people who are in the community who want to get involved or who want to kind of be aware of these changes as they're happening, if they want to learn more, what are some resources they can use to, to do that? Yeah. Um, from the EO side of things, I mean, if you are a developer, there's a large push going on to kind of bolster the ecosystem right now. Um, I am going to be very biased here and start off by saying we're hiring. Uh, Gray Mess is hiring. You can check out our blog for the three positions that we're kind of looking for right now at graymass.medium.com. We'll have a new website that outlines all of this, hopefully in the not too distant future. Uh, And it'll be a lot easier just to send people there to figure out how you'd get involved with us. But aside from that, um, I know the ENF is hiring for the EOS network specifically. Uh, the ENF is also responsible for a lot of the development that's going on right now. Um, there is other opportunities where you don't have to get hired directly, uh, either you know through Pomelo if you want to be a self-starter and just pitch without anybody's permission, um, or there is the grant framework. Again, both of the that both of these being for EOS primarily. Um, I guess Pomelo is for all networks, but anyways. Um, the grant framework is a place where you can go and pitch your ideas to the ENF for funding for public goods on EOS or for the antelope networks in general. Um, I know that these other networks also have grants programs. I honestly am not as well versed in them. The only reason I'm super well versed in the EOS one is because I am uh, a reviewer on part of it. 
Um, so there are opportunities. And I think you're going to see some opportunities coming out of the coalition in the future as well as that starts to take shape and become more like a more of an organization and less of a coalition. I think that that's probably the direction it's heading. Um, but yeah, I, if you want to get involved, there are opportunities now, provided that um, you have the skills to kind of fit in. There are a lot of skills in demand though. So um, I think right now, kind of in, at a big picture is we need drivers right now, people who can drive things. Uh, if you're entry level, I would probably say that you should find a driver to work with, somebody that's going to be seeing some sort of vision through. Um, or like I said, you know, pitch your crazy ideas on Pomelo. That's always the greatest place to start, and that happens every quarter. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, well, so we can include links to some of those specific things you mentioned in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I think this was a very uh, helpful explanation. I mean, I know I learned a lot just from hearing you talk about this and for people who, you know, I think with, with upgrades like this, there can be a lot of information floating around. Sometimes it can be a bit confusing. So I think this will be a really helpful resource for people who want to learn more about, you know, what this is and, and what it all means. So um, thank you, Aaron. And uh, let's, uh, let's hopefully kick off another coffee with Graham without going so long in between them like we did this time. Yeah, yeah. I agree. It's, it's always good to do these. Um, and hopefully people get some value out of them and hopefully we pick up a more regular cadence and do this more often. We will. Um, cool. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Check out the show notes. If you want to learn more about a lot of these stuff that, uh, that we mentioned and feel free to reach out to us at Grandmaster if you got any questions. Yeah.